0: Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 147 of The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Our students are spreading the word about Theopolis courses.
1: The content and liturgy of the Theopolis courses I've attended has impacted me in a lot of ways. It's given me a much fuller understanding of my relationship to the created world and to other people. This has motivated me to appreciate and serve others more. Through these experiences, I've truly had my eyes open to the beauty and grandeur of Scripture. At Theopolis, you receive expert instruction from a very unique perspective. And all of this is in the context of robust liturgical worship services and a great community of believers. Each course is a paradigm shifter. I've truly been formed, I think, through this experience to be a greater servant for Christ and his church. It's a truly unique experience that has impacted me greatly.
0: I have a bigger, more glorious, more beautiful picture of God and what it means to belong to him, thanks to Theopolis. We at Theopolis would love to extend an invitation to you to attend our upcoming Trinity course in the month of August. This course is entitled Loving to Know, an introduction to covenant epistemology and will be taught by Esther Meek. The class will be held from August 13th through 17th at Beeson Divinity School here in Birmingham, Alabama. During this course week, you're not only going to be learning from world-class scholars in an intimate setting, you're going to be singing dozens of psalms together with other students as you learn in the context of worship. There's engaging and lively discussion in the afternoon seminars and all meals are shared together. To register for this class, I've put a link in the show notes, or you can also head to theopolisinstitute.com, go under Events, and click on Courses. Early registration will be from June 1st to 22nd, and if you register within that time, you'll receive 10% off of the course price, as well as a free copy of A Little Manual for Knowing by Esther Meek. We really look forward to seeing many of you there. In this episode of the podcast, Peter Lightheart is going to discuss the text for the second Sunday of the Trinity season. We really hope that you're sharpened by these observations on these passages, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome
1: to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart and I'm here with Brian Motes. Uh, our regular contributor, Alistair Roberts, is unavailable today. He's uh, traveling, I believe, in the States, and uh, he'll rejoin us in a couple of weeks when he gets settled in one place and we get our schedules coordinated again. Uh, we're, today, we're talking about the, the lectionary readings for the second Sunday of the Trinity season, the second Sunday after Pentecost, and the uh, overarching theme of the readings for this Sunday uh, is the Sabbath. That's the topic of Deuteronomy 5, uh, the one of the passages, the Old Testament passage that we'll be looking at. It's also the topic of Mark 2, verses 23 through 28, uh, which is the Gospel reading, and the gospel reading can also include the first part of Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Uh, both of those are Sabbath-related episodes in the life of Jesus. And then uh, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 5 through 20 is the epistle reading. It's not exactly a, a, a Sabbath reading, but we can try to force it into the Sabbath theme if we, uh, if we can find a way to do that. i I'd start by talking about the Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5 is the restatement of the Ten Commandments. Uh, which are given directly by God in in Exodus 20 uh, and uh, then written on the tablets uh, that Moses breaks at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, After 40 years, uh, now Moses is on the plains of Moab just east of the Jordan River and he's delivering the sermons that are part of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, And after an opening section where he's reviewing the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings and uh, reminding Israel of where they've been and how they've gotten to where they are. Uh, the section uh, of Deuteronomy beginning in chapter 5 is, a first of all, a restatement of the Ten Commandments, and then it goes on with uh, detailed applications of the Ten Commandments. As uh, James Jordan has pointed out in his book on covenant sequence in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy is structured by the Ten Commandments. So after the Ten Commandments are given, then you have... Uh, several chapters devoted to each commandment and they basically follow the commandments in in order and um, not simply restating the commandment but applying it in all kinds of different ways and sometimes in kind of surprising ways that uh, fill out the meaning of the, the different commandments. Uh, that idea that Deuteronomy is structured by the Ten Commandments is a, a pretty common one um, but uh, Jim's little booklet is a place to go to uh, see and see how that is filled out. Um the uh, the uh, Ten Commandments uh, in Deuteronomy 5 are somewhat different from what were given in the uh, uh, in the original statement of the Ten Commandments in uh, Exodus 20. One of the differences has to do with the, the Tenth Commandment, which uh, is in Deuteronomy 20, or Exodus 20 rather, is stated stated as, do not cover your neighbor's house, or do not cover your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, and so on. In Deuteron- Deuteronomy 5, uh, the... Coveting of the neighbor's wife is the first uh, prohibition: you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And then, and you shall not covet, uh, desire, or covet your neighbor's house, nor his field, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So, in Exodus 20, the wife is structurally part of the house that uh, we're not to covet. Our neighbor's house that we're not to covet. In Deuteronomy 5, the wife is brought out as an uh, and. Uh, is singled out as an object of coveting, a prohibited object of coveting, uh, evil desire. Do not cover your neighbor's wife and then the household. And so there's an emphasis on the wife as a distinct from the household in Deuteronomy 5 that you don't have in Exodus 20. Um, Obviously, Moses through this 40 years of uh, wilderness wanderings has turned into a feminist and he realizes that uh, God had stated the 10 commandments badly. Uh, in Exodus 20, and so he wants to doesn't want to give the impression that the wife is just part of the property of the house, and he wants to. Uh, obviously, that's not what's going on, but there is a, dis- a difference in the way that the tenth commandment is stated, and it's a difference that consistent with a lot of other things that go on in the Pentateuch and in other places in the in the Bible, where you have a a double statement of covenant or a double uh, conferral of a covenant. Um, the first uh, iteration is. Uh, singular and uh, has a masculine emphasis. The second iteration is a corporate and has a feminine emphasis. Um, you see this, for example, in the, uh, the two censai censuses that are found in the book of Numbers. Uh, the, uh, the first uh, census in uh, the beginning of Numbers does not have uh, the wives and children included in the census. It's a numbering of the uh, fighting men of Israel uh, when you get to uh, uh, Numbers 26 in the second census, then wives and children are mentioned, and you have a couple of different passages that focus on the inheritance that's given to the daughters of Zelophehad. So they are women who are inheriting property. At the end of Numbers, that's not an emphasis at the beginning of Numbers. Um, so you have uh, a mustering of Israel at the beginning of the book that's primarily military mustering. It's ma- masculine. And then you have a a remustering and renumbering of Israel at the end of Numbers that now includes the women and places emphasis on the the bride. Uh, You see, in a somewhat different way, you see this in the uh, uh, story of, uh, in the history of uh, the two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is the lone singular prophet. By the time you get to the second generation with Elisha, uh, he is surrounded constantly by um, a, a company of prophets. Um, uh, both the prophets have interactions with women, but there's this corporate emphasis, uh, there's this bridal emphasis in the ministry of Elisha that you don't have in the ministry of Elijah. So that's that's one difference uh, from between the two iterations of the Ten Commandments. It's uh, not really pertaining to the Sabbath command, but it does, uh, does uh, indicate some progression. There's some uh, differences of emphasis in the way the Ten Commandments are presented. Uh, the passage for the reading... Uh, for the second Sunday of the Trinity season is uh, verses Deuteronomy 5 verses 12 through 15, which is the Sabbath command. Um, the Sabbath command is, is also slightly different here from way, the way it is uh, given in Exodus 20. Uh, the difference is uh, at the end of the command uh, where the Sabbath command is justified and it's given a, uh, uh, it's given a theological grounding in Exodus 20, the theological ground is creation. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the seas, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, and uh, therefore the Lord sanctified the Sabbath day. Uh, so in imitation of God the Creator who took his rest on the Sabbath day, Israel is to take rest on the Sabbath day. In Deuteronomy 5, though, the emphasis is on, the or the rationale, the justification for the Sabbath command is the Exodus. Verse 15 says, You shall remember that you were slave in the land of Egypt, the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, therefore the Lord God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day so instead of creation, you go back to the exodus that um, you put those two passages together and it suggests a, a um, kind of interweaving of creation and exodus themes exodus as a kind of new creation uh, but I think there's also an emphasis on uh, the Sabbath command as a command to give rest so uh if you ground the Sabbath in the creation, then God takes rest after the work of the six days. Uh, if you ground the Sabbath in the Exodus, then you're saying you should imitate uh, the delivering God, the Sabbath-giving God, uh, by not just by taking rest, but by giving rest. Both of the commands uh, in Exodus 20 and also in Deuteronomy 5, both of them are commands to take rest and also to give rest. But uh, Deuteronomy five places the emphasis on the on the latter, because of the because it roots the command in the Exodus, and that's also um, picked up in the elaboration of the Sabbath commandment in the rest of Deuteronomy. Um, in uh, Deuteronomy fifteen, for example, the Sabbath command is elaborated in terms of forgiveness of debt in the Sabbath year, and the Sabbath command expands to be, as uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger Benedict the sixteenth has said. As kind of a model of Israel's uh, social policy, their whole vision of society is rooted in the Sabbath command. Uh, as a, uh, it's an expression of the uh, sort of equality among all Israelites. They're all members of the people of Israel. It's a sign of uh, the uh, the fact that all of them are all of them share in the rest that God has given them in uh, the Exodus. Uh, I do want to emphasize the the point that I just made that it, the Sabbath command is a command to give rest as well as to take rest, because that's that's important I think for understanding what Jesus does in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus consistently uh, breaks the Pharisaical rules concerning the Sabbath. I don't think he ever breaks the Sabbath commandment. Uh, I don't think he could break the Sabbath commandment uh, and remain sinless if he was actually if he was actually violating the Sabbath then... He broke one of the Ten Commandments, and therefore he's not a sinless Savior, and therefore we're not saved. So you can't break the Sabbath command. Uh, A lot of times, Jesus' activities on the Sabbath and his teaching about the Sabbath is taken as kind of a qualification of the Old Testament Sabbath command. You have a command to completely cease from labor, and Jesus carves out certain exceptions to that. So... When Jesus says, uh, "If you have an ox in your ox has fallen into a well, you get him out on the Sabbath day," he's saying this to the Pharisees. They themselves bring it out, bring uh, uh, deliver an ox on the Sabbath day, and so uh, shouldn't Jesus also uh, make this exception to the Sabbath commandment and uh, deliver an Israelite, a human being, from some distress on the Sabbath day? Isn't that an appropriate exception to the command? Um, So acts of necessity, um, acts of mercy are seen as exceptions to the Sabbath command and uh, allowable work on the Sabbath. Um, But I, I don't think that that's what Jesus is doing. I think in the light of Deuteronomy 5, in the light of the fact that the Sabbath command emphasizes giving rest as much as taking rest, I think we should rather interpret Jesus' Sabbath activities as an interpretation, as a proper interpretation of the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus is challenging the Pharisaical understanding of the Sabbath. He's not challenging the Deuteronomic or the uh, Sinaitic understanding of the Sabbath. He's showing how Sabbath is supposed to be kept. And Sabbath is kept by giving rest, by giving relief. Um, The Sabbath commands require rest to be given to animals, not just to human beings in the house. And uh, so if you have an ox who's fallen into a well or a ditch on the Sabbath, you actually you keep the Sabbath command by bringing him out of the well because he's not going to be um, resting if he's in a ditch. That's a way of uh, uh, that's a way of keeping the Sabbath command, not a way of finding an exception to it. So against that background, we have a couple of Sabbath episodes in the readings from Mark two and three. Uh, Mark two verses twenty three through twenty eight is the stated reading for this coming Sunday, and then you can also add uh, Mark chapter three verses one through six both of them have to do with things that are taking place on the sabbath both are part of jesus challenge to the phar- pharisaical understanding of sabbath and then display of what genuine sabbath keeping is about the first episode is about uh, uh, the the uh, disciples passing through the fields uh, and they're scrumping grain they're taking grain from, that's from the fields which is uh, a uh, a legitimate uh, activity. It's legitimate for them to take the grain that's uh, out in the field. The law permits um, travelers to stop at a, a field and to take a, a fruit from a fruit tree, grapes from a vine, grain from the field, uh, enough to eat and keep su- to sustain them. Uh, the um, produce of the field is for the whole community. It does the field does belong to the owner, and he profits from it. But the fruit from the field is also for those who are passing through, for strangers and for travelers. And so when the, when the, uh, the uh, disciples stop and take grain from the uh, field, they're not stealing the grain. This is something that is uh, permitted under the Torah. What the, uh, what the Pharisees object to, though, is that um, the disciples are laboring on the Sabbath. They, this, by the Pharisaical rules, scrumping grain on the Sabbath is uh, a violation of the prohibition of labor. They're harvesting on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees, the rabbis later, had very detailed rules about what, how much could be harvested, how much could be taken from a field on a Sabbath day, uh, down to the down to the gram. So it's a. Uh, they see it as a violation of the Sabbath. Jesus' response to it is interesting. Uh, he cites David's example. David uh, is, uh, David's, when David uh, was fleeing from Saul, he found uh, his way to the tabernacle and he asked for bread and was given uh, some of the show bread that was being changed out. The fact that this showbread is being changed out and is available at all to be eaten shows that he's arriving on a Sabbath day. That's not explicitly stated in uh, 1 Samuel where this incident happens, but it's, um, but it's, uh, uh, implied by the fact that the showbread is available, the showbread would be set out on the golden table in the holy place for a week, and then at the end of each week, the priests would eat the bread and put out fresh bread on the on the table. So, that if there's bread available, that means that this being changed out, and it's, it's Sabbath, uh, Sabbath bread. And Jesus uh, uses this example, uh, saying that uh, David ate uh, bread that was lawful only for the priests to eat. Um, and I think he's making a, uh, uh, I don't think that's, uh, if you take law, not lawful for uh, anyone, the priest, that, I don't think that's strictly true, be- given the fact that this bread is being changed out. I think he's uh, using the lawfulness as a way of getting back, on the, back, back to the Pharisees. The Pharisees charge that the disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. And he's adopting their language and said, well, David did something that was not lawful. At least by the Pharisaical standards, it's not lawful. Um, but but um, uh, it's Jesus calls it consecrated bread, so it's bread that's been consecrated. It's now for the priests. But uh, David and his men are um, functioning priests. They're uh, under certain kinds of vows. David assures the priests that uh, his men are, have kept themselves from women, uh, which suggests they're in some kind of under some kind of vows. Uh, likely, they're under Nazarite vows. On which, make sure you pay attention to the other podcasts. Uh, where James Jordan is uh, discussing the uh, the whole Nazarite um, institution and in theology uh, from uh, the Book of Numbers and elsewhere. So uh, David and his men are under certain kinds of priestly vows, and when they come to the tabernacle, they eat the consecrated bread because they're in a kind of heightened state of holiness. Um, so uh, I don't I don't think that uh, Jesus is uh, I don't think this the the priest is giving this bread to David just as an act of mercy. I think there's a David and his men do have a certain status that allows them to eat the bread, uh, but the point that another another point that emerges from that, though, as NT Wright has pointed out, is that uh, by citing this episode, uh, Jesus is um, assigning roles to the different characters and different players in the in the place in the incident that he's in in the in the situation that he's in. So, if uh, he's citing the, David's example of eating consecrated bread. In response to the Pharisees' criticism of his disciples uh, eating on the uh, harvesting on the Sabbath, by citing that example, David, uh, Jesus is implicitly equating himself with David. He's implicitly equating his disciples with David's men. He's he's the Messiah. He's the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath, as he says later at the end of the passage. Uh, but he's also assigning a role to the Pharisees because when the, David comes into the tabernacle the uh, Edomite shepherd, the Edomite head of Saul's uh, flocks is there, Doeg the Edomite, uh, and he turns uh, the priests in to Saul and Saul comes back later and slaughters all the priests. So um, by citing this episode, Jesus is implying that the Pharisees are uh, like the Edomites, they're allies with a false king Perhaps with the Idumean king, the Edomite king, Herod, perhaps there's even that implication. But uh, uh, at least there's the implication that they're on the side of, they're not on the side of the true David, that they're enemies of the true David. And by attacking Jesus' Sabbath activities, they're placing themselves at odds with the kingdom that's come. The beginning of Mark 3 is another Sabbath episode. Uh, I had a friend in uh, uh, Moscow, Idaho, a professor of languages at uh, the University of Idaho, a member of the Lutheran Church in Moscow, who uh, spent um, decades studying the first six verses of Mark 3, just tracing out every possible little nuance of that very short passage. Uh, He published uh, at least part of the results of that in the Journal of Biblical Literature a couple years ago. His name is Kurt Queller, and uh, if you have access to uh, the Journal of Biblical Literature, you can uh, look that essay up. But he had some had found some extraordinary things going on in the passage and uh, just uh, found it had a kind of infinite depth to it, which kind of surprised him he wasn't he wasn't expecting to find so much complexity and depth and richness in a, new, a, a short New Testament passage um, But this is, again is another Sabbath, Sabbath incident when Jesus heals on the Sabbath again Jesus is not making an exception he's not saying if uh, as an act of mercy you can you can work on the Sabbath. Um, there's no necessity here. The man with the withered hand has had a withered hand for some time. He can wait till the day after the Sabbath. I think ins- instead of making an exep- exception, Jesus is actually demonstrating what Sabbath keeping is like. Sabbath keeping means giving relief. Uh, as he says in uh, Mark 3, 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? And his answer, of course, is that What's lawful on the sabbath is to do good it's to save a life that's not again an exception that is a that's actually what sabbath keeping is all about uh, the pharisees also answer that question is it lawful on the sabbath to do good or to do harm to save a life or to kill uh, they keep silent but by their actions they answer jesus question because after jesus heals the man with the withered hand the Pharisees go out and immediately begin taking counsel with the Herodians against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. So the Pharisees and the Herodians are allying together. That's interesting in itself, uh, that uh, in response to Jesus, you have these different factions that are ganging up. uh, And uh, they're allying together on the Sabbath day in order to enter into conspiracy to murder Jesus. Um, So which is the true Sabbath keeping? Is it... uh, conspiring on the Sabbath to kill, or is it to do good and to heal? Epistle reading is a portion of 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 through 12. 2 Corinthians 4 is a part of Paul's defense of his ministry to the Corinthians. Uh, That's a a major theme of 2 Corinthians. Uh, When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he was addressing a series of problems within the Corinthian church. Sometime between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul's own status as an apostle had been questioned. And so he spends a lot of time in 2 Corinthians defending his status as an apostle. And a lot of the defense has to do with an inversion of um, expectations and qualifications for about the uh, emissary of the Christ. The charge is, you know, if, if you're an emissary of the Christ who is exalted at the right hand of God, of God, you shouldn't be living the life that Paul lives, which is a life of constant... Uh, opposition. He gets beat up all the time, he gets stoned, Uh, he's on the run, he's hungry, he's shipwrecked. Uh, How can that kind of apostle be an apostle of the Christ? And Paul inverts that and instead of those being disqualifications, he shows that they are in fact qualifications. That's particularly at the end of 2 Corinthians in uh, chapters 11 through 13 where Paul uh, has this catalog of all the sufferings that he's endured for the sake of Christ. But that issue is also there in uh, chapter four, uh, the beginning of chapter four shows that uh, the specific focus is on the ministry of the apostles. When Paul Paul begins chapter four with, uh, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart, but we've renounced the things hidden because of shame. That we is not the church we, it's not the uh, Corinthian we, it's the apostolic we. We apostles have men- this ministry, and as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Um, and as he goes on, he describes the gospel that we preach. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord. We are bondservants uh, for Jesus' sake. We are your bondservants, he tells the Corinthians, for Jesus' sake. Uh, again, that's the apostolic we. And so the the, the uh, section in verses 7 through 12 where Paul is talking about the death that's working in us, the life that's working in the Corinthians, uh, that's uh, talking about the apostolic ministry that the apostles share in the dying of Jesus so that by their sharing in the dying of Jesus, they can communicate the life of Jesus to the Corinthians. Their affliction, they're, they're afflicted, they're crushed, they're persecuted, they're struck down. They uh, carry the dying of Jesus in their body. But uh, through all that, they're communicating the life of Jesus to uh, the church. So that's primarily a, uh, a description of the ministry of the apostles. In the context, that's the immediate import scott hafeman in his work on uh, second corinthians has um, talked about this as a model for ministry uh, not just for apostles but for anyone in leadership in the church uh, uh, anyone who's leading the church is carrying the dying of jesus in their bodies so that they can communicate the life of jesus to the church uh, and then in a uh, secondary or implied way this this can be a description of the ministry of any christian the service of any christian uh, we're all sharing in the dying of Jesus, and we're all called to die uh, in Christ, uh, die to ourselves uh, so that we can communicate the life of the resurrection to those around us. Just to kind of tie, the, tie up the loose ends, uh, there's at least some hint of a Sabbath theme there. I've been emphasizing in Deuteronomy and, and uh, Mark that Sabbath keeping is about giving rest not just taking rest, and Paul is describing that same kind of dynamic. In fact, he's not—he's not at rest at all. He's afflicted and crushed, and so on. Um, but the whole movement of apostolic ministry is to share the life of Jesus that he has, to share the rest and the uh, fullness of life that he's received. Uh, even through his own dying, he's sharing that life with the
0: Corinthian church. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.